Okay, I think we'll get started. Uh, so hello and uh, good evening uh, from Cambridge. And of course, good morning uh, to those of you who are, who are joining us from Singapore or other parts of Asia, including, of course, our speaker, uh, Fang Xiaoping. Uh, so welcome to the uh, welcome back to the Fairbank Center's Modern China Lecture Series. My name is Arunab Ghosh. Uh, I teach modern Chinese history here in the history department at Harvard. Uh, I'm also the convener of this lecture series. Today is the, the third talk of the semester. We have two others planned uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, so before I introduce our speaker for today, uh, I want to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the upcoming talks. Uh, two weeks from now, on November 2nd, uh, Eugenia Lin will speak about her work on, or ongoing work, on uh, Xiang Mao Honey Soap and histories of global capitalism. And then on November 30th, a few weeks after that, Joan Judge uh, will speak on print, vernacular languages, and reading practices across the long republic. So please look out for uh, formal announcements of these talks, uh, uh, which will also include information on how to register. Uh, these will all be on, on online uh, on Zoom. Today, uh, I'm delighted to welcome Professor uh, Fang Xiaoping. Professor Fang is a historian of modern China. Uh, he has two, I guess, broad interests or broad research areas that he works in. Uh, the first is the history of medicine, health, and disease in 20th century China. And the second is the socio-political history of Mao's China, so that is China after 1949. Uh, Xiaoping is currently an assistant professor of history in the School of Humanities at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Uh, as of this year, he's also the deputy head of the Chinese program at NTU. Prior to joining NTU in 2013, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney, for four years. Uh, and prior to that, he received his doctorate from the National University of Singapore, where he specialized in both modern Chinese history and in the history of science, technology, and medicine in East Asia. Helping has conducted long or spent, ha has had long research stints uh, at the Needham Research Institute in Cambridge, UK, uh, at the Asia Research Institute uh, at the National University of Singapore, and most recently, in 2019-2020, he was a fellow of the National Humanities Center here in the U.S. He's the author of two books. The first, which came out in 2012, is titled Barefoot Doctors and Western Medicine in China. It was published by the University of Rochester Press. And much more recently, actually earlier this year, uh, he published China and the Cholera Epidemic, Restructuring Society Under Mao, which was published by the University of Pittsburgh Press, and I presume we'll hear much more about the book also uh, in, in a few minutes. Uh, in addition to his, his monographs, uh, uh, Xiaoping is widely published in both English and Chinese language journals, venues uh, such as China Quarterly, Modern Nation Studies, uh, Modern China, Guoji Huar and Yan Jiu uh, for which he also uh, co-edited a special issue, and of course, uh, many others. To me, what is extremely impressive also is that he is a translator who has translated both ways, from Chinese to English and English to Chinese, uh, of a few major academic works. This I find uh, quite amazing and very impressive. Um, the title of his talk today uh, is Pandemics and Politics in Mao's China, the Rise of the Emergency Disciplinary State. So Xiaoping, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, um, but before I hand things off to you, uh, a, quick, uh, a quick word about format to, uh, for our audience. Uh, so Xiaoping will speak for about 35 to 40 minutes. We will then follow that with uh, Q&A for about 30 minutes. Uh, so finishing by, uh, if you're on the East Coast, USA, 9.15, 9.20, or thereabouts, or 9.20 a.m. Um, Singapore time. If you have questions, please write them up uh, using the Q&A function. 
and you're welcome to to populate the, uh, the start writing your questions during the talk itself. I will try and get to as many questions as possible. I'll try and uh, collate them as best as I can. Uh, ideally, if you can, before typing your question, identify yourself. We would appreciate that. But this is being recorded, so if you'd prefer to stay anonymous, that is of course perfectly fine too. Okay, so with that uh, note about uh, about format out of the way, Xiaoping, welcome again, and over to you. Uh, many thanks for Professor Gorge's kind introduction, and I'm very grateful to Professor Gorge, uh, Mark Brady, and James Evans for arranging uh, this lecture for me. I'm very pleased and honored to give a talk at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. And thank you all for watching and listening to my talk in the evening, morning, or in the afternoon. Um, my recently uh, published the book, uh, my recently published the book, uh, analyze the dynamics between and the social restructuring during the, the global corona pandemic in China between the, the great political forward and the cultural revolution. Uh, as we all know, uh, they were the most, two most radical political events of the 1980s. In 1961, the Elto Corrupt epidemic broke out on Sulawesi Island, Indonesia, uh, becoming the seventh global corrupt pandemic in recorded history. Uh, in China, Elto Corrupt first broke out in Guangdong province in June 1961. Uh, Indonesian Chinese had returned to China during the archipelago's pandemic, escaping the political economic and the racial tension between Indonesian and the Chinese and were immediately Xiaoping, can I can I interrupt you for a second your uh, the audio is not very clear uh, for some members I wonder if you can speak closer to the microphone it's not okay. coming across very clearly can you hear me? yeah it's a little better I think let's try let's try this now yeah okay So uh, this is a returning Indonesian Chinese were, yeah, immediately, okay, were uh, immediately suspected the cholera uh, carriers. Uh, the cholera was, was controlled in Yangjiang County, Guangdong province by September 1961. However, uh, the disease re-emerged in Guangdong province in February 1962 and quickly became a pandemic one that mainly affected the southeastern coast of China, spring, uh, spreading rapidly through the Zhejiang province, the Fujian province, uh, first the Zhejiang province, and then Fujian, uh, Shanghai, and the Jiangsu from July 1962 to uh, 1965. Uh, the 1961 to 1965 uh, pandemic broke out and spread uh, throughout the southeast coast of China in a very specific social political context. In China, uh, it arrived in China at a delicate time when the devastation of the Great Famine of 1959 to 1961 was still lingering. Uh, in local politics, the uh, government committed to social restructuring 
in order to overcome the political crisis and then we consolidate the legitimacy of its role. As a crucial step to, uh, toward this, the government reformed and restrengthened the stream, uh, schemes for controlling the population mobilities and creating the organizational units, undertaking the social surveillance, conducting critical indoctrination, and further implemented the economic strategies and the policies that it had initiated in early 1950s. At the same time, it consolidates a strict division of the Chinese society into rural and urban areas. So this social restructuring in early 1960s brought about a transition from a chaotic population movement that was characteristics of the great people forward years to the orderly mobility in the more sedentary post-farming society. The state dominance of world life production and consumption brought about the social restructuring of the 1960s continued largely intact throughout uh, North China. As this social political change was also intensified and complicated by geopolitical roles of China with the international community at the peak of the Cold War. In this international context, China experienced reshuffling of its geopolitical and ideological interests clashes with allies at neighboring countries and areas, in, particularly in Southeast and East Asia. This uh, included the Indonesian Chinese nationality issue and the Chinese military preparations for uh, quotation mark, uh, reclaiming the mainland. This external environment both challenged and reinforced the social restructuring process. So my book uh, investigates the, the dynamics between the disease and the social restructuring the significant transitional years of Mao's China. It seeks to examine the questions in three parts or three aspects, uh, including the disease and the mobility, social divisions and borders, data and data and the social structure. Uh, my book chose to center my study on Wenzhou Prefecture because the coral instance was the highest in Southeast coast of China, according to the uh, statistic that data available. Uh, we understand it is um, quite difficult to get the accurate statistic data. And uh, Zhejiang uh, was also among the pro provinces with the highest uh, instance of the disease out of uh, those affected by the cholera in Southeast coast of China at the time in the 1960s. Uh, furthermore, uh, Wenzhou's large coastal regions and extensive river and the belt access have endowed it with the specific uh, geopolitical significance uh, since the 1950s, uh, since early 1950s. The nationalist government uh, based in Taiwan uh, regarded it as a bridge across the which it would, uh, quotation mark, uh, reclaim the mainland. Why the communist government identified Wenzhou as the frontier uh, of 
imperialism and anti-Chiangkai-Shen groups, so that military confrontations between the nationalists and the communists reached the, uh, its peak in June 1962, June 1962, precisely when the Korra pandemic was ravaging Wenzhou Prefecture, Zhejiang Province. So Wenzhou was a coastal front society within a wider uh, Cold War uh, in Asia. But further complicates uh, this, uh, Wenzhou was also a major point of origin for overseas Chinese from Zhejiang province, uh, immigrants from, uh, from Hong Kong, Macau, and Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, visited uh, Wenzhou intermittently throughout the 1950s and the 1960s. So now let's look at the emergency uh, response scheme right after the outbreak of the Korea pandemic. The Chinese government launched a large scale but clandestine, clandestine uh, emergency response scheme, which included interventionist measures such as quarantine, isolation, and mass inoculation. And then the epidemic surveillance, the last the information control, uh, when China was like an isolated nation in a globalized health community during the Cold War. Uh, it should be uh, noted that elder cholera often appeared in a mild clinical form and results the many symptomless, symptomless carriers moving around while unaware that there was spring disease. But indeed, the majority of the individuals infected with the cholera either had no symptoms or just showed mild, mild diarrhea. For classical, it is, it is different from the classical cholera. For class, uh, classical cholera, the ratio of the severe cases that require the hospitalization to either uh, mild or asymptomatic infections, one to five to one to 10. But for elder cholera, as this figure reaches, reaches one to 20, 25 to one to 100. So it's much, uh, much higher. Um, furthermore, uh, both uh, quarantine and the inoculation were not advocated by international community, the medical and health communities, such as the WHO in 1960s uh, and the 1970s. So by the 1970s, the WHO had explicitly pointed out inoculation was usually of no help for cholera control. Uh, uh, these are the similar cases uh, were plague and uh, uh, tuberculosis. Well, anyway, we are talking about the, the history of cholera and the plague and the, and the tuberculosis. It is different from Paris and uh, COVID-19. Um, so now let's look at the quarantine and isolation. So after a week, uh, a week after the first cholera case was confirmed in Luyang County in July 1962, the Zhejiang Provincial Health Department issued its first circular on the cholera quarantine. The first, uh, the provincial, the provincial government divided the Zhejiang Province uh, into three zones that assigned the different control and prevention duties. In this way, the Zhejiang provincial government 
partition the whole province into a series of concentric circles that centered on the cholera affected Wenzhou prefecture, just three, uh, three, uh, three counties. Uh, within uh, these uh, geographical zones, the provincial government set up uh, major observation stations along the railway lines in, within the Zhejiang province. Uh, in the meantime, a series of high mountains that was located between the Wenzhou and this uh, quarantine belt form uh, a geographical barrier. In addition, because the cholera mainly spread by the fishermen, a lot of fishermen come from, come from uh, Guangdong and Fujian. And, uh, so the Zhejiang province, Zhejiang, uh, Zhejiang provincial government set up a temporary joint quarantine stations the three major archipelagos in, uh, in Zhejiang. So in combination with the railway and the geographical belts on land, they formed the first quarantine range around the Wenzhou. Within this quarantine range, the provincial government formed the second and the third range of the quarantine control, uh, control mechanism along the major highways and the maritime, maritime roads that connect the Wenzhou to other areas of the province. So within these three quarantine rings, the county and the city governments further divided the quarantine zones from the county level down to that of the district and the communes on the basis of the existing administrative structure. The infected and the neighboring areas were further classified into blockade areas, semi-blockaded areas, and controlled areas. So this is the practice of the quarantine and the isolation. In my book, I investigate the rise of the multiple borders, including the natural borders, the administrative border, the militia, uh, militia borders, meaning the quarantine uh, borders, and their significance in the reciprocal interaction between the interventionist prevention measures and the social restructuring during the pandemic in 1962 to 1965. My study shows the, how the social critical restructuring uh, prior to the pandemic led to the rise of invisible administrative borders based on the visible and the nature borders through the compositional homogeneity, uh, political surveillance, and economic egalitarianism. The quarantine scheme further reduced the administrative borders through the partition and the encirclement, while the quarantine station interwove this uh, nature uh, administrative, military, and epidemic related border and created a tight surveillance network. Uh, my study also shows the problems around the quarantines of suspected cases and isolation of infected patients during the cholera prevention work. The principle of the, the on-the-spot uh, isolation, economic concerns, and the fear of contagion shape the distribution features of the isolated patients, which reflected and strengthened the urban hierarchy by containing, further containing the population and mobility. However, uh, the first, uh, the isolation process itself, itself become a potential source of contagion 
due to the poor medical facilities and the unclear resource distribution. Uh, similarly, uh, quarantine schemes further contain the mobility of the sedentary populations, regulate the movement of mobile populations, uh, mo monitor the activities of populations deemed very dangerous. However, the quarantine was ineffective, not so effective, not so effective at identifying the atypical patients and suspect the carriers, giving the feature of the cholera uh, transmission and the just now. The quarantine and the isolation that greatly strengthens the contour of the newly restructured society. And I argue that interventionist scheme to control the pandemic not only harms the opportunities provided by the broad social restructuring initiative, but also directly contributed to these efforts and significantly facilitated the rise of the emergency epidemic states. Uh, if mass inoculation was another interventionist uh, measures, traditional and interventionist measures adopted during the pandemic. In the early 1960s, Chinese medical experts uh, believe that only when 80% of the total population were inoculated could a community achieve adequate immunity against the horror. Accordingly, uh, on August 3, 1962, directives from the Zhejiang Provincial uh, Party Committee and the People's Commission ruled that the entire population in each, uh, in each county of Wenzhou Prefecture had to be inoculated against the before uh, August 15, only uh, less than 12 days. So emergency inoculation in, uh, initiative means a total inoculation campaign in which local governments had to inoculate a total of 2.34 million people within 12 days. So this emergency posed a serious challenge for both uh, for local governments in view of very limited time frame, the extent of the duty, and the serious shortage of medical personnel. At the heart of the problem, lay the requirement to secure the accurate population information and the coordination professional medical system and the local administrative system, because a lot of the uh, medical professions uh, come from the other areas. Uh, my study explores how the restructure of the rural society, uh, rural social system, facilitated the entry of total emergency uh, inoculation schemes into rural villages by making the local agents and house information readily available. It also considers how the inoculation campaign adjusted, improved, and then eventually strengthened the newly downsized and restructured people's communal system. So my, my study documents how the downsizing of production brigades the designation of duties to local countries, the compilation of the household registers, 
and the implementation of the new payment schemes, whom we call the Gongfengzi, greatly facilitated the state control over rural areas and theoretically provided the efficient local targets and accurate demographic information for inoculation programs. Uh, however, the emergency inoculation schemes in the summer of 1962 suffered due to the poor coordination of the local targets and chaotic information on inoculation subjects. The strengthening of, strengthening of the roles of the former and the creation of reliable inoculation registers based on the brigade household register and the team accounting uh, team accounting books facilitated a, a concerted total inoculation campaign in 1963 and afterward. Uh, this is the progress on a progress on the coral inoculation in uh, Rian County uh, from 1962 to 1964. As we can see, uh, in 1962, it took around uh, 100 days to complete the inoculation campaign. But by 1965, uh, it only took the seven to 10 days to complete uh, inoculation within Hong Kong County. So it's much, much quicker. Uh, it should be uh, noted that the mass inoculation campaign were in the coral campaign, uh, inoculation campaign, were in, implemented during the next two decades according to the schedules and the reason established in 1963. Uh, this preventive inoculation uh, against the cholera uh, were phased out in China in late 1970s. Uh, in my book, I argued uh, that inoculation uh, registers and the cert uh, certificates generated by these campaigns were very significant for the concurrent restructurings of the people's communal system as we have as the household that demographic data were more accurate than reliable through the repeated verifications. And this process demonstrated the dynamic interactions between the household accounting and inoculation register uh, during a period of significant social restructuring. And this was implemented through the demographic data gathering that was initially designed to verify the data in order to deliver the health outcomes by the distribution of the inoculation certificate. Uh, this bureaucratic process further contributed to the formation of the uh, uh, sedentary society and creates a new set of biopolitical data that would in, uh, encompass the whole society. Uh, functionalized as a population control and the surveillance scheme, all these inoculation campaigns strengthen the emergency disciplinary state in changing social political context. Uh, academic surveillance and statistics during the pandemic had been a solid issue uh, in the academic prevention system of 20th century China. The difficulties of academic reporting uh, caused by the problems of coordination and the capacity of the administrative and the medical system still haunted the new governments after 1949. Although the Chinese government quickly 
established a complete administrative system right after its revolutionary victory. Uh, the medical system, uh, including the epidemic prevention scheme, did not emerge uh, nationwide until the mid 1950, uh, just six or seven years before the outbreak of the global cholera pandemic in 1952. Uh, this not only posed the greater challenges to emergency response to the pandemic, but also provided a significant opportunity for improving the epidemic prevention scheme uh, through the restructuring and integration of the two systems, uh, the medical and administrative system in, 19, in early 1960s. So my study explores the rise of the disease surveillance actions and the politics of the disease statistic election and how this contributes to the social restructuring uh, through the sweet concurrent process. The first is the institutionalization of the medical system. The second, the medical regionalization of the administrative system. And third, the epidemiological categorization of the discrete populations. So I argue uh, the establishment of of the outpatient departments for testing the uh, diseases, the submission of the stool sample for testing, and the control of the medical practitioners for three uh, crucial steps in the medical institutionalization process in 1963 and after. The cellularized epidemic reporting based on the vertical downward scheme and the horizontal regionalization of both the professional and voluntary mass epidemic reporting networks effectively regionalized the grassroots administrative system within the social political restructuring that was taking place at the time. Uh, my study also argues that the follow-up to test for cholera patients, the classic classification of patients that suspect the carriers, vulnerable uh, groups, and healthy populations and the creation of a patient's archives uh, functioned as epidemiological uh, categorization for different populations. Uh, this process was integrated with the household registers along with the inoculation registers and uh, contributed to the rise of a new kind of uh, statistic uh, uh, politics, which helped shape the uh, concurrent social structure. Uh, in all, as the new and the integral biological control tool, the epidemic statistical scheme quickly developed as a crucial part of uh, an emergency uh, disciplinary state. Uh, the, in, the issue, the final, final one, the issue of the information control involves both the politics of the pandemic information and the historical origins of the tradition of the secrecy around the epidemic statistics in contemporary China, in North China. But cholera pandemic information was highly uh, criticized in domestic and international political context of the 1960s and it contributed to concurrent ground level social restructuring process. Entrenched the supernatural inter interpretations of the etiologies and the religious, religious practice and the social memory of the cholera pandemic posed the serious concerns for the uh, communist government. 
in terms of maintaining a social orders and political legitimacy. The cholera functioned as a political metaphor and effective control of it justified the government's role. As part of the response efforts, cholera was defined as a national secret that, like other epidemic and pandemic information, and was coded as a level two disease in Chinese uh, uh, information on it was um, not only strictly controlled, but also held with considerable political significance inside the government system. Uh, the top-down dis uh, dissemination and surveillance of pandemic information become a form of critical discipline of the targets. The silence, silencing of the public media and the strict control of the information about the current pandemic to the masses functioned as a political indoctrination. Uh, in the international arena, the Chinese government created an information asymmetry between asymmetry between instill and the international health community and the further endowed information about the corona uh, pandemic with the political functions of advancing the ideological work. Information control uh, that's uh, become the key features of, uh, of an emergency response schemes for epidemics and the pandemics in addition to the traditional interventionist method such as quarantine, isolation, and inoculation in North China. Uh, more significantly, the political discipline, indoctrination, and the ideology, ideology imposed by the corona pandemic information control scheme had a comprehensive impact on the different uh, administrative uh, systems and social groups such as party and government systems, the propaganda system, local countries, medical professionals, and ordinary people. Uh, during this control process, criticism, uh, self-criticism, punishment, control, and guided narratives were widely applied. As a cohesive uh, and disciplinary scheme, information control become an uh, adjunctive political event accompanying the corona pandemic one which significantly contributed to the concurrent social restructuring and the more broadly uh, the rise of emergency disciplinary state in North China. Also, conclusion, uh, disease and its uh, control were not only affected by social restructuring that began in 1950s and strengthened since 1961, but also in, in integral components of this quarantine, isolation, mass inoculation, epidemic surveillance, information control, functionalized social control and political discipline, and thereafter, therefore significantly contributing to the rise of emergency disciplinary state. In the all, emergency disciplinary state was composed of the top-down leadership, the vertical, vertical bureaucratic system, and the horizontal grassroots social organization including the people's common system and the work units based on the household registration system. Through the centralization of the political power, the dominance of the administrative system and the secularization of the local society, this regime was an integral and active government entity. The government, the party and the social government 
maneuver the nationwide med uh, medical resources and the personnel in response to pandemic. And medical, medical and administrative system jointly participate in academic prevention campaigns. Restructure the rural and urban society the implementation of the traditional interventionist measures. Uh, in all, this process depended on the richness of the medical resources, the integration of the two medical and administrative systems, and the cooperation of the local society. Uh, it was not a, a straightforward process. However, once it was uh, improved, uh, the public health response team changed in the emergency demonstrate uh, demonstrated its efficiency, aggressiveness, and the resilience. And the rise of the emergency response phase during the public health emergency response of 1961 to 1965 was of great significance uh, in a broad historical context. It's uh, exerted far-reaching impact on the social political system and the emergency response uh, since most China. So uh, thank you all. Great, thank thank you so much. Uh, that was that was really fascinating and a really nice comprehensive sort of uh, overview of, of your book and your your main arguments. Uh, so uh, the floor is open for questions. If people want to type them up in the Q and A function, uh, please do so, and I will try and um, get to them um, in in as uh, uh, I guess logical a way as possible. Uh, but as we as we perhaps collect questions, maybe I can ask you uh, something to begin the conversation, Xiaoping. I was struck listening listening to you and, and as I began reading the book, uh, sort of about the parallels that parallels are perhaps also differences that exist uh, with Miriam Gross's book, you know, who wrote about uh, uh, Farewell to the God of Plague, which is about schistosomiasis. Uh, yes. I, my, my, my sense is it's on a slightly later period. But one of the things that she uh, she talks a lot about, so one thing she talks about, of course, is is the role of the youth, the send down youth and so on, which I think is, of course, not directly applicable to uh, to the early 60s. Uh, but the other thing that I think is an enduring sort of question that she uh, offers insights on is this sort of divide between uh, sort of uh, Hong, Hong and Juan, right? the red expert kind oh, of distinction. Yeah. So I was wondering, uh, do you see sort of... Uh, what is what is your, your sense of how this this sort of divide plays out in Zhejiang, uh, and and how does it sort of relate to perhaps what what Miriam argues? Oh yes, uh, very good questions. Uh, Hong and Zhuang is a very uh, very important uh, issue and a to uh, or topic. Um, you know, um, Dave Lampton, Dave Lampton uh, wrote a book about the political medicines uh, from nineteen forty nine to nineteen. Uh, to 1977, he analyzed the analyzed the relationship between the between the uh, top uh, party leadership and uh, the Ministry of Health. Ministry of Health. So uh, uh, on this question, for, I mean, the, on the web, uh, and the uh, in 1961, uh, from 1961 to 1965, uh, the relationship between the medical professionals and uh, the party were much, uh, was much better than other periods. I mean, uh, the medical professionals participated in the uh, emergency response schemes actively, and the governments uh, couldn't listen to their opinions. 
So that, that's my that's my answer. Mm-hmm. answer. Okay, yeah, so that, that's actually quite interesting and different, yeah. But later, uh, the situation changed right, after right, 1965. Right. Changed. Mm-hmm. But during this period, they, they participate the, the events very, very actively. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Yeah, we have a, a question that's come in from uh, uh, Lini Tang, who's uh, right now a visiting fellow at the Fairbank Center. Uh, she asks, uh, she says, uh, thank you, Professor Fang, for the presentation and the book that I found very rich and interesting. I wonder if you could share with us if the influenza pandemic in 1957 influenced the Chinese government's reactions to the cholera pandemic. So, sorry, the pandemic. The, 19, the 1957 influenza pandemic. 90 of, or 1957's influenza. Yeah, if it had any uh, influence honest, on the Chinese government. Yeah, uh, to be honest, uh, I have heard of the, 19, uh, the influenza in 1957, but I have not done much uh, research on this topic. But in 1907, uh, to my knowledge, uh, during the Great Leap Forward, during the Great Leap Forward, um, epidemic meningitis was very serious. You know the epidemic meningitis. Epidemic meningitis because mm-hmm. uh, broke out in uh, during the Great Leap Forward and during the early stage of the, the Cultural Revolution, it broke out again. So I pay a lot of attention to epidemic meningitis, but I did not. To be honest, I did not pay attention, much attention to. Influenza, influenza in 1957. I think it's an important topic. Great, yeah, thank you. I mean, in some ways, before I go to the next question, maybe I can ask something else that I think builds off of um, uh, what, what uh, uh, Lini Tang just, uh, I think, asked, which is if you were to sort of do a slightly longer durée, try to sort of situate the story you're telling of the 1960s in a longer durée that goes from, I guess, you know, the early work we have on... Um, the Manchurian plague, for instance, oh. and the early measures that that you know that were devised then that became globally influential in some ways, and then you know sort of situate your work, and then of course more recently with SARS and now with COVID nineteen. Uh, if you were to sort of say one say one interesting continuity or moment of this juncture that uh, the the cholera case presents, what might come to mind? I'm just sort of trying to think of the long durée. You know, if if this is mm. a, an overall process of a straight strength, strengthening, straight, you know, sort of the emergency disability state that you say, or do you, do you see this as a much more uneven process? Um, uh, uh, regarding the continuity, I think um, the relationship between the, between the medical systems and administrative, administrative system is very significant during the, the changing social political context. I mean, uh, the the Manchurian, uh, Manchurian plague, the Cholera pandemic, the SARS, and the, even the, the current the COVID-19, the broke out and spread in the different social, uh, social restructuring. But all of them involve the key, uh, the key issue, that is the relationship between the, uh, between the administrative and the medical system. The second uh, issue I think uh, should be uh, vaccines. Vaccine, but it is not so important. As I mentioned in my presentation and, and my on my book, uh, international health uh, community did not advocate the use of the uh, use of the vaccines because the cholera is a classic disease. It is not so difficult to control, prevent, and and cure. Just the, uh, the government just needs needs to improve the 
basic uh, sanitary infrastructure to provide the clean water and the food. So the vaccine. Um, I think the most important thing is the relationship between the medical and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, administrative system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's great. In some ways, I think the two questions that have come up uh, have come up that are related to each other. Uh, maybe ask you to elaborate on on precisely this nexus in terms of what maybe the state, the current state, has learned from the 60s. So I'll just read out the two questions, uh, and then then you can sort of see if you can elaborate on 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 uh, any of these aspects. So this is from an anonymous uh, attendee who says. Thanks for the talk, Professor Fang. I wonder how would you compare the public health response scheme in the socialist era and the one PRC has today? So, you know, along the lines of what you're saying, especially their difference in addition to the recent adoption of digital tracking techniques. And what are some of the lessons of the post-socialist, of post-socialist China want to learn from socialist China in the latter's response to the pandemic? So what are the lessons that could be learned from the 60s for today? Uh, and similarly, there's a question from, uh, from Li Ping Yang who says, uh, thank you, Professor Fang, for your great presentation about your research. Uh, what do you think of the implications of the experience accumulated by the Chinese government in handling the cholera epidemic in the 60s to its management of the ongoing COVID pandemic? So again, asking you specifically what we see today that might have roots in, in, the, you know, in, in the kinds of processes you uncovered in the 60s. Uh, okay. Um... I was trained in, in Chinese history. I was not in I was not trained in uh, epidemiology and public health, so I'm not expert to make comments on about the current uh, current uh, measures and achievements uh, in, in China today. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned in my presentation, the book uh, very important uh, is the is the sorry. Uh, is uh, very important is the emergency response uh, response schemes in established uh, in 1960s uh, was entrenched in the uh, emergency disciplinary state and these are uh, the characteristics of this uh, emergency disciplinary state that demonstrated its um, uh, aggressiveness and the resilience I mean the resilience so uh, as we have uh, as we have seen, after the outbreak of the SARS in 2002 to 2003, uh, the government uh, still resorted to adopt the, the traditional interventions, the interventionist measures. And nowadays, uh, these uh, traditional interventionist measures were uh, still be are still being strictly implemented nationwide in China. So that's my uh, that's my comment. Okay, great. Yeah, I think I'm not surprised that there are so many questions asking you to, you know, so what is the, what is the sort of the connection to, to today, given that, you know, we are in, a, in the midst of a, a global pandemic. But, uh, but perhaps uh, uh, we could go back to another question that I found, of course, given my own work very interesting, which is, you know, your talk, the, the, the research that you've done with regard to statistical practices, and then the way they, yeah. they, they sort of emerged. Um, I, I'm wondering sort of what, so the, the the focus seems to be uh, at a provincial level and then at a county level in terms of the research you've done. And I was wondering how, you know, to what extent you see this fitting into the medical statistical data that is being produced. Is that then fitting into sort of some kind of national, like a national system? Or are these much more sort of local initiatives, even though, you know, you, you talk about a top-down 
system, but are these a lot more local in terms of the initiatives, in terms of the standards and so on? So partly what I'm asking is within the statistical, the emergence of this kind of statistical data, what is the relationship uh, across the different levels of government from the center to the province to then the county and, and even perhaps the village in some ways? Okay. Yeah, uh, thank you for your question. I have learned a lot from your book. Thank you. No, thank um, you very much. In a word, I think it is a well concerted, top down nationwide initiative. It is definitely not, not the local initiative. It is well connected, well concerted, top down and nationwide. I mean, the uh, county governments, provincial governments follow the instructions of the central governments. And they, they collected, compiled the data and reported to the upper governments, the levels, step by step. So it is the top down, of, top down and the bottom up the process. So, so what is, it is so, also national, right, sorry, nationwide. Yeah, it, it is also nationwide uh, uh, program. And it, it, is, uh, it is improved step by step. Uh, in 1950s, 60s, and 70s. But the significance of this uh, statistic, uh, uh, the politics uh, in, during the Korea pandemic was uh, allied in its uh, institutional beauty. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I mean uh, this uh, emergency response scheme established a preliminary, uh, preliminary uh, the systems. I see. So okay. a, a quick follow-up then. Uh, just uh, So how, how do you sort of assess, uh, or what, what not, not you, but how did, um, how did they sort of deal with these questions of, you know, these concerns over accuracy, is, especially as the data is traveling up, uh, up to, you know, the provincial level and then all the way to Beijing? Uh, how, what was sort of the understanding of, is this data accurate? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this in the larger context of, you know, the problems we know with the Great Leap Forward and the, you know, the way in which data itself became such a political political mm -hmm. subject. Uh, and then this problem of accuracy uh, somehow plagues contemporary the contemporary perceptions of the mm -hmm. Chinese state also, whether it's GDP data, whether it's now, mm -hmm. you know, in the early yes. days of COVID-19, COVID-19 data, and so on. So what was the, at that time, what was sort of the approach or understanding of the quality of the data that's being, that's being produced? Uh, well, I think it's a very good question. Um, as we all understand, the accuracy of statistical data uh, in most China has been a, has been a problem, an issue. Uh, we, uh, as I did, we did not, we should not expect we can get the very accurate statistical data concerning such a the, the disease or other other, other social political uh, events. Um, for me, I think it is. Uh, a qualitative research, not a quantitative mm -hmm. research. Um, so I just I, I can I just try my best, try my best to to get the statistic statistical data uh, I can get, I can I can access. Mm -hmm. And this data I am sure can show the general uh, statistic, general characteristics and the general change of the whole situation. Well, for example, we, it, it, it is very hard. It is almost impossible to get the all the accurate information concerning the concerning the corona pandemic and mm -hmm. other epidemics and the disease. But uh, we can present the uh, uh, general pictures of the 
characteristics and the trends of the development outbreak or the spread and transmission of the of these epidemics and the pandemics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. I was asking. Um, what I was asking was a slightly slightly different in the sense that in the do you see this concern amongst the actors that you're looking at? So the, whether at the at the village and county level or at the provincial level, you know, do they uh, express any concerns about the data that's being generated? You know, did you did you sort of see that in the archival record or in 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 you know printed reports and things like that, or or is that never really does that never become a topic? Uh, oh, sorry, you mean accuracy? Yeah, exactly. So, are they themselves talking about it at any level or not? Uh, uh, I just uh, read one. I read one archive document uh, concerning about the local government concern about the accuracy of the epidemic, corona uh, epidemic. But uh, and I, I mentioned I mentioned in my in my book that local government did not some some local governments did not uh, want to report accurate the information because it involved it involved the, the local economies mm-hmm. and, the, and and the images and the political performance of the local countries. So that's the their big concern. But it happened in just a few a few uh, township a few uh, people's communes. It's not the, the widely happened uh, situation uh, phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, great, thanks. Uh, we have another question from uh, an anonymous attendee who says, thank you for your fascinating talk. Uh, Ruth Rogaski's hygienic modernity traced the marriage of public health and modernity through national crises amid European and Japanese imperialism. And Mary Brazelton also noted the role of mass vaccination in the state developing new forms of control and social engagement. So they're asking, I wonder how the particularities of your emergency framework contribute to the existing historiography. So what are the continuities and changes across the cholera crisis divide? Thank you. Mm. Uh, I see my contribution. Okay. Uh, In terms of of in this genealogy, so if you take Ruth Rogaski's work, you know, which addresses a particular moment in Tianjin with imperialism, and, and, mm. and sort of public health and the, the desire to be modern as, as one example. Then uh, Mary Brazelton is looking at sort of Southwest China wartime, very, again, mm. very different context, but uh, sort of uh, uh, social engagement and, and, and sort of uh, state control expanding through vaccination. So I guess if there is a genealogy, I guess they're asking, uh, where would you fit your emergency framework? Uh, I think uh, the, uh, Professor Luka, uh, Rose Lukaski and uh, Professor Mary presented his uh, work uh, concerning Tianjin and, uh, and, and Yunnan give a lot, give me a great deal of inspirations. So it alerts, uh, they, they works alert, alerted me to pay attention to uh, the relationship between the uh, medical systems and the administrative system. That's the great, uh, greatest uh, inspirations I got from the day they work. And the theoretical concept like the um, hygienic modernity mm-hmm. and the mass inoculation. Mm-hmm. And so, and would you say something similar then for uh, for Mary Mary Brazelton's work? You know, the uh, uh, work on wartime wartime vaccination in in, in Southwest. Oh yeah, wartime war, uh, comparing with uh, wartime uh, vaccination in Yunnan and other parts of the. Uh, southwestern China. 
uh, the difference the difference is uh, they was uh, not um, uh, there was a not uh, administrative system during the during the mm -hmm. wartime mm -hmm. China, or uh, in other words, the, during the wartime China, the local administrative systems could not effectively part participate in the uh, inoculation the campaigns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But after after 1960s, the inoculation campaigns was promoted and implemented nationwide. The following the establishments of the uh, top-down administrative system. I think that's the uh, that might be the, the main difference between the wartime China and the Mao's China. Mm -hmm. Right. So it, it sort of in some ways presents different different ways of, for us to think about state capacity. Also, that they're both both kinds of state capacity, but very different because of the the mechanisms through which that state capacity is exercised or realized. I guess mm -hmm. is one way to think about it. Yeah. Okay, we're well. We're approaching the end of our time here. Uh, I would invite the people uh, who are in the audience still, if they have a, a, maybe a final question to ask, we can we can take a final question or two, um, and uh, and see if uh, if anyone else wants to ask a question. If not, then I will ask. Oh, well, here's, here's uh, Lini Tang has another question. Otherwise, I was going to ask a final question, but maybe we'll take hers as a, as a, as a final question. Thank you, uh, Tang. She asks, in your book, uh, you talked about control, but also about the resistance and out of control in some situ situations, such as mass vaccination. So resistance to mass vaccination. Would mm -hmm. you tell us a bit more about the resistance against this emergency disciplinary state? To what extent this disciplinary state was efficient on the ground? Uh, yes, uh, to some extent, to some extent, resistance, uh, resist, resistance to uh, the mass uh, inoculation campaign did happen uh, during the pandemic, but uh, it is not a wide, uh, wide phenomenon. It happened, but it, it was so wide, it was not a wide phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Okay, so thanks. So maybe I'll I'll I'll, I'll ask the last question, uh, and then we can we can wrap up. But uh, so this this it, it sort of builds on 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 Itang's question right now about the emergence emergency disciplinary state as a concept. I was wondering. I'm trying to think of how how portable something like this is to other contexts and other parts of the world in some ways. And I wonder if you have thought about this as a. So is this a useful way to think about? You know, maybe other. Uh, you know, so is this giving us something as a as a concept that we can use in 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 broader uh, bro broader contexts and not just make it something very specific to China? I wonder what your reflections are. Do you see it as being maybe something that can travel uh, and address other other contexts? Uh, to be honest, I haven't uh, thought about the, my the contribution and the uh, inspirations of my uh, theoretical concept. And I would be I would be very happy to see if our colleagues in the field uh, studying other social contexts would be interested in my uh, in my in my concept. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, because it's it, it's it's interesting to think about it just in terms of at these moments of crisis, whether states can make arguments for essentially exceptional circumstances um, that allow for you know to you know to use to essentially allow for states of exception different kinds of states mm. of exception that then uh, that then get somewhat normalized even after the crisis is over. 
And to some extent, if this fits within those kinds of patterns that you see where you know, it's an expansion of state control and state capacity building off of moments of crisis and whether then this would be, it can fit into those larger debates also or not, which would be, I think, very interesting to think about. Uh, anyway, uh, I, sorry, I don't know if you're going to say something. So. Oh, yes, I think definitely. Uh, it is, um, particularly, uh, I think this uh, concept that will help us uh, understand the impact of the current pandemic on our daily life. As I mentioned in, in the conclusion of my book, I also just briefly, very briefly discussed about the, the health code. Every day we use the health, uh, health code to enter uh, the office and into mm-hmm. the shopping malls. And the, all our all our information, all the information uh, is being recorded and monitored. So that is, that is very significant. Right. So that would be a, that would be an interesting example to sort of study and situate within this uh, through this through this paradigm. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we're at time. So thank you so much. Uh, this was this was for both a fantastic talk and a great discussion. And thank you to our audience members uh, for joining us and for your questions. Uh, and you have a, a, a comment here also from from Bin Liang who says who thanks you. So uh, please uh, join me in 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 thanking uh, Professor uh, Fang Xiaoping. And please do join us uh, in a few weeks' time for our next talk on November 2nd, I think, with Eugenia Lee from Columbia University. So thank you again. Yes, thank you all. It's my great pleasure. Thank you.